Hey everyone, welcome back to Here to Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by youthsupportandpatreon.com. Today I'm joined by Dr. Charles Talaferro. He's a distinguished professor of philosophy at St. Olaf College. We're going to be talking about common objections to natural theology, especially with regards to his entry in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, published, I believe, a little over a decade ago. Um, but Charles, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm well. It's good to be with you, Zach. It's so fun to talk to you, and I'm really looking forward to covering um, five objections ranging from things maybe David Hume brings up to maybe things we'll see today by like newer atheists and such. Um, but before we get into those things, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yes. As Zach was saying, I'm a professor at St. Olaf College, where I've been for 36 years, and I've taught at Notre Dame and the University of Massachusetts. I've published... Um, just over 30 books that I've edited or co-edited or authored. Um, I love doing philosophy and let me just see. Yeah, I came to philosophy as an undergraduate at the same time that I started practicing as a young adult Christianity. So my faith and philosophy kind of went hand in glove. Mm. Um, and it's the best life I could ever have imagined. Um, I went to graduate school for, it took me nine years, but I picked up three masters, a PhD, and I was teaching at the University of Massachusetts at the, at the near the end there. So um, if any of you are thinking of a vocation, I highly recommend philosophy. It's a, not only a great worthwhile in itself, it's also a lot of fun, so. Mm. Yeah, philosophy is so exciting. So what specifically drew you into like um, philosophy and natural theology, like when you were an undergraduate, um, getting into the, the amazing world of philosophy? Well, actually, somewhat of a peculiar story, but I, I was really, I, I didn't know this, but I was drawn to philosophy in order to get away from my brothers. I had two <laughs> brothers who... Um, I didn't know this, they, but they, I learned that they hated me my whole life. One was um, the son of my mother and one was the son of my father. Both of those couples divorced. I and my parents met. I was the firstborn. And so after both pa my parents died, um, one of them said, he stopped hating me. Um, the other one still does hate me, and why? Is it because we were envious and jealous, so they both said it. And what I found was in the world of philosophy, there's not, a, at its best, philosophy you know, means the love of wisdom. And there was no bullying or, or name-calling, and people were patient with each other, listening to each other's arguments and reasoning together. And this was remarkable because my brothers didn't reason with me or anything. <laughs> everything was mocked. You'd say, good morning, and they'd say, ooh, good morning. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I, I found when I started reading philosophy and C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> I found a world where you could actually argue with each other without insulting each other. And an argument wasn't just, it wasn't a quarrel. You actually respect each other when you provide reasons for believing this or that, and that was just exhilarating. But it was it was it was a bit of a refuge. It was um, getting away from <laughs> two, two older brothers. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's such an interesting story of getting into philosophy. And I, I resonate with a lot of what you say, because when I look at like the best of like these conversations with regards to like natural theology and such, you see such like nice, respectful people with these like amazing, wicked, smart ideas and they're going head to head, but it's so graceful and it's beautiful to see. Um, so we're talking about your, uh, not your objections, but answering five objections to natural theology here you, you didn't work on start off could you talk about like for someone that's like what is natural theology what would you say charles if i was to ask you and i had no idea what it was when what is natural theology natural theology is basically a, a philosophical inquiry into the existence of god based on experience reason reflecting on the nature of the cosmos but without appealing explicitly to uh, scripture, to the Bible. It's been said that there are two books that God authored. One is the book of nature and the other is scripture. And natural theology takes on the first book. It's changed, however, over the centuries. It now includes, as you'll see in the Bible Companion, there's an entry on religious experience and often the natural theology that you find in the medieval period, 1700s, 1800s, it usually doesn't appeal to religious experience, but now it's, it's not an appeal to uh, divine revelation claims as, as found in scripture, the Quran, Hebrew Bible, but it does include the whole um, platform of human experience. Mm. That's awesome. Um, so you got these five objections that you answer um, with regards to like natural theology. So I think it's just best to get into them. Um, so we'll work through them one by one. And if there's anyone listening that has questions, we'll have a little bit of time at the end for Q&A. But the first objection here is this idea that there's just no logical space to posit theism as an explanation. So someone may say, well, we have this like material world and it's what we experience. Um, so why posit something that goes beyond this world? Why can't it just be the world? Why posit this um, unobserved maybe entity of God? So how would you respond to that kind of objection? Well, and, and it is one that is definitely in the culture as well as in the intellectual climate. Um, but I, I would say that it's, it's an objection that's often founded on a false premise. What we, what we have from the natural sciences is a portrait of the cosmos um, that brackets mind or consciousness. So in physics, chemistry, and biology, you nowhere get observations, experience, and the like. Science cannot occur without there being scientists. I know that sounds really bizarre to point out, but there are scientific naturalists, for example, Daniel Dennett, uh, one of the new atheists, and he does wind up wanting to have science without any scientists. He kind of ultimately eliminates consciousness. And what I would say is that um, you, the, the most certain thing that we can grasp is the existence of consciousness, experience, observation, our use of reason, and the practice of science itself requires all this. So the first thing I would do in, in a dialogue or debate was I'd, I'd seek to interrupt 
the, the premise of like, we, we have a really clear grasp of the physical world. Well, I think we have a clearer grasp of consciousness, experience, intentionality than we do of a mind-independent world. Mm. So what's happened today, just really briefly, Zach, I don't want to go on too much. No, you're but, good. You're, you're good. Okay. What's happened is that, um, and Thomas Nagel's pointed this out, an atheist, but he's kind of on our side in a way. He's pointed <laughs> out that modern science bracketed the mind, and then um, philosophical scientists thought, well, maybe we don't need mind at all. Maybe all we need is biochemical process, neuropsychology, neuro, uh, but without the experience. And um, it's kind of like Robert um, Louis Stevenson. He, um, yeah, I think it was him. He wrote a, a little short story called The Shadow. And what happens is that the shadow takes a life of its own and ultimately brings about the death of the person who's creating the shadow. And that's kind of what's happened, is that we've got this juggernaut, highly successful natural science, but what it's doing is, is forgetting the fact that you need a much more solid understanding of experience. Now, it doesn't follow that, therefore, God exists or something like that, but it does interrupt that particular line of reasoning. So when we're looking at like this question of like, what well, aren't we just like adding something unobserved with regards to like God? Do you think it's good to start with the idea of us just like having experience and consciousness and like this first person activity that kind of like interrupts with the idea that we just live in like this like material, causally clo closed world and such? Yes, I think so. And also, you mentioned I think you referenced, and I'm, I'm sure this does reflect an objector who might say God is unobservable, but in a sense, uh, to make two points. One is, we are in some ways unobservable to each other. That is, I can see your behavior, I can hear you. Obviously, we would say, I'm seeing you right now. Uh, but do we, we do this because we're functioning as a mind-body integrated whole. And yeah. that's perfectly sensible. But two things, one, one is technically, uh, we don't ob observe literally your thinking and feeling and experiencing. We can open up your brain and open up your skull and observe neurological patterns, but I can't literally see the thought um, Charles is talking. Mm -hmm. And so I would say there's that to consider. And the world is more mysterious than these naturalists make it out to be. And secondly, People do claim to have an experience of God. This is something across cultures, um, across time, and there's been a there's a center of um, the study of religious experience actually in Wales in Great Britain, mm -hmm. and um, the accumulation of reported experiences are not just like seances and and so on. No, people. I I I myself would go on record as saying that in liturgy, in meditation, I've had a sense of living quorum Deo, that is, in the presence of God. Mm. But that's part of a datum, along with the contingency of the cosmos, the fact that it's um, ordered, the fact that, it's, that consciousness has emerged. All of these need to be taken into account.
Mm. Yeah, I think I think his name is Kai Kwan, who wrote the argu argument from religious experience in the Blackwell Companion, and it's a really interesting read on this topic. Um, but the second objection here is an interesting one. I've seen people. Uh, Sean Kelly in his debate with Will and Craig talk about this and it's the idea that the theme has no explanatory power with regards to like the natural sciences. Um, so maybe they'd say like, you know, we can observe the cosmos and all of these things and it seems like it's just naturalism. Like we observe natural forces behind um, maybe like the shifting of planets or like the formation of stars and such. Um, so theism though, there's no scientific tests that provide this like explanatory power to kind of like give legs to the theistic idea. Um, so a little bit similar objection to the first one, but a little bit different. So how would you respond to that kind of objection, Charles? Well, at the risk of um, circling around the same point, I would say that mm -hmm. we actually have a clearer grasp of intentionality and purpose of activity. We wouldn't, again, we wouldn't have science without being able to, um, just even the, even, even the project of explaining whatever, extraterrestrial planetary motion or terrestrial movement, all of this presupposes a clearer grasp of what it is to do things purposefully and intentionally. So the whole idea that we have a clearer grasp of, um, I don't know, subatomic parts than we do of the mind, it gets it backwards. We would have no concept of atomic theory motion unless we had a grasp of the idea of atomic motion, the concept of uh, atomic and subatomic parts. So this idea that you, we, yeah, so it's, it's really the intentional purposive world that is more, is foundational if you're going to have science at all. Um, you know, if you say, how can we account for science? Well, you can't account for science without presupposing purpose of intentional explanations. And that's the kind of explanation that comes into play with theism. Mm. That is the belief that there is a transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good divine reality that sustains, intentionally creates and sustains the cosmos. That's all intentional purposive forms of explanation. And we know those work because we know it in our own person. Mm. So what you're saying here then is um, we have this tool of science, which is so good at um, helping us understand things around us and like all these amazing things regarding the subatomic level and, and such. But we have to like in the first place, just ask like, what is science? Why can't we do science even in the first place and kind of get like beneath the surface almost um, with regards to this se second objection? I think that's right. and. And as a matter of fact, so as not to repeat the earlier points, but um, science actually presupposes ethics. It, presuppose, it doesn't explain ethics, it, it seems to me, but you can't do science without ethics, minimally um, of truth-telling, of, of careful observation, of um, not falsifying the data, and so on. And also, we, we should keep in mind that in the history of science, is built on collaboration. And this is where you actually have to trust others. That's never been bigger than right now during the pandemic. Mm. Labs, uh, I just happen to know personally from um, in New York, let's say labs that used to compete like Cornell and Southern Manhattan and um, Columbia, the Northern part, the West side, 
these labs would compete for grants and so on, but now they couldn't be closer in terms of sharing absolutely every, all the data. And so, again, science makes a very interesting um, object to consider. A philosopher, Whitehead, once said, a scientist who tries to establish that there's no such thing as purposiveness is a very interesting object of observation. Because the person is winding up purposefully trying to establish there's no such thing as purpose. Mm. But there are people that do that. Mm. It's so interesting here. Um, as we move on here, we have a third objection, which says that I, I found this, I was rereading your entry a little bit last night, and I found this really interesting because it's the idea that um, theism is only plausible because it compares God to a person. Um, so it's almost like it's saying that we're like crafting a God as in our own image as kind of like an explanation for like um, the, the big questions and such. Um, so I'm curious, like, it's like, Oh, we have this, like we have minds. Well, let's just posit a mind and we have power. Let's just always posit. There's just, like this ultimate power. Um, that's kind of like how we get the theistic explanation. Um, so like, how do you respond to this kind of objection? Well, it's, um, it's a matter of doing a, a comparison. That is, if you compare, uh, when you're explaining matters, often, whether it's um, a crime scene or just explaining um, life and during a pandemic, um, what you're doing is often comparing theories or hypotheses. And in terms of, you spoke about the big questions, I think the big questions in certainly Western intellectual climate, and pretty much this is global, is between a scientific form of naturalism and theism. I think this is the, these are the big schools of thought. And I, I think if you look at the Indian subcontinent over the centuries, it was really Buddhism versus Hinduism. There are all kinds of versions of each, but they were often comparing a kind of natural account versus one that posits some Brahman in this case. And what theism does is it does account for the existence of consciousness, persons, and the like, but it does so on the grounds that consciousness, as it were, has always been. So there is a sense in which, and I'm a Trinitarian, so I believe the Godhead consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit kind of three centers of consciousness that are interpenetrating. So the Godhead is not homogeneous, it's more like a community. In any case, um, what naturalism winds up with though is an account of the whole cosmos with an appeal to chance and necessity, with an appeal to a non-personal cosmos, mindless, non-conscious, and so on. And so the, the burden of naturalism is to explain how consciousness emerges. And a lot of people, the reason why a lot of naturalists wind up denying the existence of consciousness is because um, it seems as very difficult to explain. Mm -hmm. Why would you have the supervening and emerging, this is kind of an argument from fine tuning that comes into play. So um, yeah, the, and, and in fact, one of the views that is now making headway is called pan-psychism. Yeah, David Chalmers. 
That's right. And so this, this view is kind of like, um, well, we, we are having a hard time explaining where consciousness comes from. Mm -hmm. hmm, maybe we should be theists. No, let's not. <laughs> let's just, um, let's claim that consciousness has always existed, but not in terms of the Godhead, that, you know, a supreme mind or minds, uh, but it's always been there. So this is, yeah. So, but, but the fact that panpsychism is emerging is a reason to think that consciousness, it, it's very difficult to explain without there being, you know, a, a metaphysics which posits consciousness as a primary principle, mm. cosmic. Yeah, it's, yeah, so, it's interesting. so interesting. And I just want to, um, the steel man, the naturalist, hopefully not straw man, but hopefully steel man, the naturalist here. And it's, when you think about like these big questions, um, what's you know, like we have like this idea that, well, there's probably something necessary when you think about the fact of like contingent things like you and I, Charles, and then we have this thing called consciousness. And well, it seems like it almost like you may have to be some sort of like brute necessity, like panpsychism, something along these lines. And it seems like you have under naturalism, like all these kind of like things that on, almost end up having to be like brute facts, um, but without any sort of like unifying explanation for them. So do you think like the theistic picture provides like a more unifying explanation of um, the things in this world? I do. And so it has a great explanatory power, I believe, and it is able to offer a unified account of values, not just so the emergence of consciousness, but also the emergence of values, is able to account for religious experience as being um, disclosive and um, having normative force. And that's, you've got to kind of go in that direction. The, um, in my view, the notion of brute facts, I might just comment on that. And mm -hmm. that is, theism understands Classical theism in perfect being theology understands God as existing necessarily. God's essence includes God's existence. So what God is and that God exists is are the same, unlike us. There's what we are, homo sapiens, and then there's whether there are any homo sapiens. Um, however, what I would say is um, every philosophy has some brute facts or purported principles. So um, the question really is, uh, what can you do with it? What, um, if you, again, going back, if you give me science, I think you're going to have to give me consciousness, purposeness, intentionality, all this. Quoting Whitehead again, Whitehead said that arguments place a price tag on things. So if somebody says, I'm just going to assume physics, chemistry, and biology, well, how much, how far can you get with that? I don't think you can get um, uh, warfare, presidential elections, and so on. You, to get into our world, our social world, world, you're going to need psychology, history, the social sciences, and I think ultimately you, you'll need philosophy. Mm. And then when you step back and think, uh, which, which worldview is the most plausible, then I think theism is very 
powerful. I'm not going to suggest that it's so much so that you could, um, that it, it actually compels any thoughtful inquirer. I don't think it's that strong. One of my professors, uh, Robert Nozick, he said, the best argument would be one which changes your brain so that if you don't consent to the conclusion, you'll die. Now, it's not that order, but it is, um, I think, more reasonable than agnosticism. Reasonable people can deny the cosmological argument, argument from emergence, and the ontological argument, but I think on a cumulative case uh, is not absolutely compelling, but I find very forceful. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Um, another objection I have here as we talked about this cumulative case is the idea that, well, maybe there's just no framework in which we can test theism. I hear a lot of um, people, especially online, that will talk about the idea that we need this like empirical evidence to prove that God exists or things like that. Um, you know, like all these philosophical arguments are great and good fun, but there's no, there's no proof that God exists. We, we have, we can't put him in a test lab and demonstrate that he's here. So I'm curious, like, how do you respond to this kind of objection to um, natural theology? Well, in um, philosophy, anyway, the notion of proof has almost no place at all. There's almost no argument that, so there, what are there, around eight or 9,000 PhDs in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no single argument that, or position that all, all of us would agree to. So you find proofs in, in mathematics and logic, of course, but on this point, I'd, I would note that radical skepticism, somebody who is deeply skeptical about sensory experience, um, very few philosophers would claim you could prove to the skeptic that the world is as it appears. The certain thing, I think we can probably, I'm sort of with Descartes here, I think that denying the self is, um, is probably the most, um, uh, let me find the best way to put this. That is, denying that you yourself exist seems to lock you into a contradiction because you have to um, exist in order to disbelieve that you exist. So on these foundational points, but uh, there's no, I couldn't prove to a, a rigorous skeptic in the tradition of Sextus Empiricus, going back to the ancient world. And there are skeptics. Um, Peter Unger at NYU, he wrote a book called Ignorance, claiming none of us know anything. And he even wrote an essay called Why I Don't Exist. He followed <laughs> up by Why There Are No People. And <laughs> Amazing. It's, it's, it's astounding how far people will go. One of my mm -hmm. good friends, an atheist, but Galen Strawson, he for about two years defended the view that selves, that is persons, only exist for three to four minutes. Hmm. But I'm in a book, you know, I don't mind him knowing this, but I personally think that some of these are designed to get, well, attention. Mm. 
Yeah, I wonder, like, if we're going to, like, follow the naturalist route, like, all the way through, um, if we'd almost would have to deny, like, ourselves exist. Like, it seems so intuitively obvious, but then if we just live in a material world, we might just be, like, rearrangements of pre-existing material, so there really wouldn't be anything unique about us necessarily. Maybe one route a naturalist might take is, um, which is interesting to think about. Um, the final objection I have for you here, and then there's a, we'll do a couple of questions, and I saw a super chat, is the idea that natural theology just isn't enough to justify belief in God. Um, and it's kind of similar to this idea that we, where we just can't test theism, um, but we can't show things like God being like omnipotent or omniscient or like a mind or things like that. Um, just because we, we just can't show it. We can make these arguments, but we just, we just don't know. Um, so how do you respond to this kind of objection to natural theology? Well, we do, we can test philosophical hypotheses for their um, elegance, their coherence. There are dozens, hundreds, thousands of arguments um, on divine attributes that it's incoherent. Uh, there's a book by Michael Martin, he died sadly about three years ago, called Atheism. And as Peter Vandermeijen said, there wasn't an argument for atheism that Michael Martin didn't like. Uh, that is, and what you can do is you can go through them, as I have, and you can, you can actually demonstrate that these are unsuccessful. And you can come up with very good reasons for believing in the coherence of theism. Mm -hmm. And so these, these things do admit of testing. And uh, it's not going to be like in a, a literal lab, but in a way, there is a laboratory of ideas. And we have ways of arguing when we do ethics that doesn't, you know, let's say if we're arguing about utilitarianism. And there have been lots of Christians who've been utilitarians over the years. Actually, the first utilitarians in the modern era were a utilitarian. Paley, a natural theologian, was, was a utilitarian. But, what I would say is all the arguments about utilitarianism, a lot of them come down to appealing to moral experience and its coherence. Um, does utilitarianism generate highly counterintuitive results, uh, results that seem to run entirely contrary to our, our moral experience and practices? So that's, that's an example of where um, persons argue all the time. Uh, but it, it's not going to generate an observable litmus test the way you would um, test with a Geiger counter, you know, the level of radiation in your building. No, it's not going to be like that. Mm -hmm. But it can be tested nonetheless. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, so we're going to go through a question, a couple of questions or super chats, things like that here for these next few minutes. Um, so we have a super chat from Israel. So thank you so much for that and your support. He says, how close is the relationship between um, philosophers of science and scientists? So like, why are there these scientists that are making outrageous philosophical claims? He says, I mean that if like they don't interact with, do they not interact with philosophers at all? Or how detached are they of each other? Um, so he's talking about, like ideas like Stephen Hawking said, like philosophy is dead or like some, you know, like there's very popular scientists that will say like, oh, there's just nothing at all to this theistic stuff. Um, so what are your kind of your thoughts on this question, Charles? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, some scientists like Hawking's, uh, but I would also say um, 
Dawkins, they're not philosophically trained. And mm -hmm. so um, when um, Hawkins uh, actually suggests that the cosmos could have been created by some um, wave activity and the like, and that that is not a case of explaining the cosmos. That's not violating the principle that nothing comes from nothing, because he's positing these um, waves and particles and, and so on. So I think that um, philosophers of science have actually been doing a better job in 2011 than they did in the 1950s and 60s. And a fair number of philosophers of science seem to not really be firsthand acquainted with scientific practice itself. It's kind of like in the philosophy of art. A lot of philosophy of aesthetics and art was done by philosophers who had very little experience of the art world. That has changed. Hmm. But I would say that if you, um, if you speak with a, a neurologist, often it's the case they will, um, they'll reveal that they actually believe there's more to a person than their brain uh, because they, they rely on the reports of subjects. They can't see thinking and feeling. They, they discover the visual cortex by asking subjects, what color are you seeing now? So it, it's the case, oh, uh, oh, oh, sorry. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm in the midst of my apartment. It got flooded. There's a, a plumber coming. <laughs> no worries. No worries. But um, the business about philosophy being dead, there's an old saying that philosophy always uh, buries those that are coming to uh, bury philosophy. Why? Because you really almost can't attack philosophy without having a philosophy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Um, the next question here is from BDS, which says, it seems to me that the foundation of belief in the God of Christianity, the God of Jesus, is religious experience and intellectual experience is supplementary. Um, is this the correct way of thinking? So I think he's thinking about like the idea of like having the law of science and the law, like the, like the scriptures and such. So what are your thoughts on this question, Charles? Well, I think it's a, it's a terrific question, and it's, let me just think for one second before I No worries, no worries. By the way, I'd say that um, natural theology or philosophical reflection is, um, it, it, it's more common than you think. That is, I think many people believe in a higher power. In fact, according to sociologists, only 4.4% of Americans would identify themselves as secular atheists. And in fact, in the world population, um, belief that there's a God is, is way up there. It's over 80% of the world population. Even in places like Russia, the former Soviet Union, and China, um, and Northern Europe, which is supposed to be so secular, if you ask a different question, like, do you go to church? But if you ask, have you prayed over the last month? You find a lot of people who are reflecting on the nature of the cosmos and think, how likely is it, how plausible is it to believe that all of this is the result of chance or necessity? So I think 
the idea of there being a higher power is pretty widespread. And if you didn't have that, I'm not sure religious experience alone would be enough. Now, clearly it probably has been for some people. So, you know, so be it. But I think that it's an area of reflection which I would invite um, believing Christians to test, to explore. It's a, it's a, it can be a way of even confirming some of the things you already believe or uh, challenging you in different ways. Mm. An interesting question here from Kay Darby, which says, is the project of the defense of metaphysical inquiry a good route to defend whether we can also make progress on the questions of philosophy of religion? Um, he also adds, my basement was recently flooded as well, so solidarity there, or his apartment. Um, so for someone that's a fellow flooded apartment person here, what are your thoughts on this question? Hi, Kay Darby. I hope you wind up in a better position than I am right now, but um, yes, I think that a metaphysical inquiry is, um, I, would, I will say it's almost unavoidable. There are, however, Wittgensteinian philosophers, Howie Wettstein is a friend of mine who is a practicing Jew, but he doesn't believe that there's a God. He says, I'm a naturalist, I pray, I think I'm in contact with God, but he's, um, he's you know, it's, I think it's a very confusing position because basically, Howie Wettstein, Wittgenstein, they have to posit, uh, there, there are language games, there are concepts, there are people praying. This is a metaphysical claim. Metaphysics, for some uh, philosophers, means something uh, very exalted, like you, you're not doing metaphysics unless you're with Hegel or something. But metaphysics, which literally means after physics, and it comes back to Aristotle, but it literally is just uh, your view of what exists. It, it, it's synonymous with ontology. Sometimes it's distinguished you know, Heidegger and so on. But if you're just looking at a philosophical dictionary, it means it's answering the question of what is there. And I think that that's extremely hard to avoid. Nietzsche tried to. Nietzsche had an interesting argument. He said, if there's no God, there can't be any such thing as truth, and there can only be perspectives. But even Nietzsche has to posit the existence of perspectives that perspectives really exist. Otherwise, his view of perspectives would be nonsense. So I think the, the attempt to avoid metaphysics is um, bound to fail. In fact, one of the most famous books, Logical Positivists tried to get away from metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And I wrote the entry, by the way, on philosophy of religion on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's free, it's online check it out, I address the positivist, natural theology, revealed theology. But a very famous book came out called The Metaphysics of the Logical Positivists. And they're going, oh my gosh, we're trying to get away from metaphysics. <laughs> but they have one. And um, Hume had one, even though some people that claim to follow Hume, Hume posits the existence of um, ideas or sense objects. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have one more question here before we'll start to wrap things up from Alex Ray, which says, why is scientific naturalism materialism so strong these days? Um, why do you think it has a hold on so many prominent scientists? Um, so, so what's your thoughts here, Charles? Well, it's, it's one of the most um, powerful instruments that we have of knowing uh, ourselves and the world. I have, it, it generates a body of knowledge which is self-correcting and the like. However, I think it is based on a kind of amnesia or a kind of disregard of what you need to have in order to have science itself. You have to have consciousness, you have to have experienced thoughts, intentionality, purposiveness, and so on. Uh, I would say that uh, scientific naturalism is uh, not the only form of naturalism alive today, and you have a number of naturalists that are trying to be more liberal. In fact, it's literally called liberal naturalism. And there's also what's called progressive naturalism and broad naturalism and common sense naturalism. It comes in like dozens of flavors. But what they do is they say, okay, we can't, get, we can't abandon consciousness, experience, values, is you load everything up. And then the question is, can you still hold on to the idea of naturalism, which, you know, loosely might mean there is only nature, but, um, you know, eventually you're going to burst the, the seams and you're going to have to step back and think, well, naturalism just is coming down to just denying theism. And when you bring theism in, um, I think theism is going to, going to be deemed by most inquirers who are really fair-minded and impartial as the more powerful. I don't say, again, coercive, but it's going to be a powerful um, worldview over against naturalism, even in its liberal forms. Definitely. Well, Charles, thank you so much for coming on and talking about these important objections and such. I'd be, love for you to take a moment to just kind of share any like last thoughts, if there's things you didn't get to say, and just kind of like if people can follow your work, like where would you point people towards um, for like learning more? Well, I, at the risk of being self-promoting, I do recommend the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Philosophy of Religion. I've um, updated it maybe three times, and um, I've got a lot of positive feedback from it. So this will take you into pluralism, it'll take you into lots and lots of objections and replies. Of course, in the entry, I'm not explicit as a Christian. I'm um, trying to be fair to everybody, and, and even now I'm trying to be fair to everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I don't self-identify as a believer in that entry, but that would be, I think, a good place and then one more thing is that there's a four-volume encyclopedia of philosophy of religion with 350 entries. Huh, awesome. and I'm the senior co-editor. We have five associate editors. You know, we have an atheist, we have a practicing Jew, we have a Hindu, uh, and so on. And then we have 15 other assistant editors, and it's going to be out this summer. It'll be the most comprehensive guide to philosophical reflection in every area of 
religion around the world, from um, Sikhism to um, yeah, every form of Hinduism. And also all the main figures in the, in the history of Christian theology and philosophy. So I highly recommend that. Mm, well, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to that coming out. Um, so Charles, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so much fun. Um, I've learned a lot and I'm sure everyone else listened to it as well. I would encourage everyone to check out Charles' work. He just talked about where you can find it. Um, and if you're new here in Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe. Whether you're on YouTube or podcast, be sure to do that. Leave a like, leave a review. I appreciate that. And then if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash adhere in Apologetics for as little as a dollar a month. I really appreciate everyone's support through there. It means a lot. Um, but Charles, thank you so much. One last time for joining me. It's been thank so much you fun. Very much, thank you. And thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Kay Darby, um, James, Alex, BDS, Israel, everyone else. Have a good one and God bless.